Here we go. So, Grayson Anthony Bolin, child of the covenant, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah. Y'all look what God has done. Woo! We love you. So precious. Oh, thank you, of course. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, Cameron. All right. You know what's cool? Back to me. You know what's really awesome is that baptism and generosity are both about transformation and making something new. And in the coming months, we together are going to be celebrating the baptism of people of all ages, from infants to adults, because baptism is one of the places where we get to see God's generosity on display creating new life, transforming a life, and making new things possible. So when you and I give back to God, we are declaring that we have witnessed the generosity of our loving Father, and even more, that we are grateful recipients of it. So along with the generosity box in the back of the room, here are five ways that you and I can step in align with and join God in this powerful transforming work that we've seen started in this little guy's life. God bless you, Grayson. Would you please rise and join us in song?
things going on in this book called Esther. We got pride, we got violence, we got gore, we got palace intrigue, we got providence, a word we've been kicking around. What does that mean? We got sovereignty in question. And we have people being in the right place at the right time and willing to have the guts to stick it out. And that's what we've been doing, reading this book called Esther. And it's, it's a part of our Bible. And one of the things we've been saying about the book of Esther, we're going to review where the plot line is in just a second. But before I want to do that, I want to remind you that in Esther, God is never mentioned. And so in this plot line, these characters, these people, and you could date it about 500 years before Jesus, and we're in the area which we know today as Iran, Iraq, Persia, as it's called back in those days. Is God, who seems to be hidden, really at work in your life when he's hidden? Is he at work in the life of these people because he appears not to be there? Because remember, these are the people of Israel, the Jewish people. God made a promise to them and said, I'm going to do this. Abraham was the first one. Abraham, I'm going to make your family huge, really big, and I'm going to bless you, but not because you get to keep it. Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and then this is what's going to happen. You're going to explode, and every family on the planet is going to get blessed because I'm going to bless you. Abraham, you're going to pay it 
forward. And now they look like they're on the edge of annihilation. They're, they're in exile. They've been captured by these Persians and taken hundreds of miles from home, from Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem then as it is today, and hauled way to the east to modern-day Iran, Iraq. God doesn't appear to be anywhere. God does certainly not appear to be sovereign. God does not seem to be providentially in control. And in this book, God is never mentioned. He's hidden. So what you and I are being asked to do is test whether or not we want to pick a side. There is no God, or there is, though he's hidden, I can see him at work. And you can experience that in your own life, and you have, and you do, and you will. And that's what's going on here. So a few of the characters, the first thing I've already said, the people of Israel have been conquered violently and exiled. There are a few left in Jerusalem, but most of the people and all the leaders get exiled hundreds of miles away. That's where they are. And they've been there for two or three generations. Four characters in this story. The king of Persia, his name is Xerxes. He likes wine. He gets drunk a lot. And he makes decisions, some of them drunken, some of them not. But the other thing about the king that's important to understand is he didn't get to be a king by being nice. He's brutal. And he doesn't care about whether or not people get hurt. Peons, regular people, he doesn't care because lots of them do get hurt. So there's King Xerxes. He, theoretically, he's running the show. Maybe that somebody behind the scenes is running it. His number two man, Haman, he's a vile, wicked, cruel person. And Haman hates these Jewish people that are a part of their population. The third person and the fourth person are related, Esther. The king decides Esther is beautiful. She wins a beauty pageant. And the king makes her his wife, his queen. And then Esther has an uncle. His name is Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai are Jewish. But the king doesn't know she's Jewish. He otherwise wouldn't have married her. But he makes her queen, and there she is in the palace. And Mordecai spends time hanging out at the gates of the palace just to make sure his niece is doing okay. So the tension is this. Haman hates the Jews, and he's duped the drunk king, who doesn't care anyway, into signing an edict and stamping it with his signet ring that says, kill, Haman says, I'm going to kill all these Jews. And Haman says, king, I'm paying for it too. And the king just says, okay, and lets him do it. I'm telling you, brutal, brutal people. Mordecai hates Haman and refuses to pay obeisance to him and bow down to him when, Mordecai, when Haman is strutting around, showing off in the streets. Haman is a bit of a weenie. He takes it personally. He goes and whines to his family and his friends and his wife. And you know what they say? Build a gallows and hang Mordecai on it, kill him. And Haman says, great idea, but i got to get the king to sign off on it, and that's where we are now. So Mordecai is plotting to get the king to let Mordecai, uh, Haman is plotting to get the king to let Haman kill Mordecai, and Haman is hanging outside the king's gate in order to troll a little bit and see if he can't get the king's attention. So here we go. That's where we are. An edict to annihilate my people, says Mordecai and Esther. And they're wailing, and they're worried, and they're nervous, and they're grieving, and they, they have no defenses. And this is how the story goes from here. Esther chapter 6. There we go. 
I'm just going to read. It's a, it's a lot of stuff. I'm going to read it. I think I've set the stage for you, so let's have at it. That night, the king couldn't sleep. He ordered the record book, the day-by-day journal of events. Now, the king can't sleep, and the king doesn't remember things because the king has a wine habit to be brought and read to him. They came across the story where about the time that Mordecai had exposed the plot of these two guys, two royal eunuchs who guarded the entrance and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So the king is reminded that these two people wanted to kill him. Mordecai exposes them, and he asks, what have we done for him? The king asks, what great honor was given to Mordecai for this? And the eunuchs answer back, nothing. And the, and the, uh, nothing, the servants who are attending, nothing has been done for him. The king said, is there anybody out in the court? Now, Haman, remember I told you he was trolling, hoping to get the king to sign off on the execution edict for Mordecai. Haman did and just came out the outer court of the king's palace to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had built for him. The king wants, okay. So the king's servant said, Haman's out there waiting in the court. Bring him in, said the kings. When they had entered, the king said to Haman, what would be appropriate for the man the king especially wants to honor? The king wants to honor a man. And Haman's thinking to himself, Watch for the hubris. Look at what's happening. He must be talking about honoring me. (laughs) Who else? Oh, Haman, you don't have an idea about what's going to happen yet. So answer the king, for the man the king delights to honor, do this. Bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one with a royal crown on its head. Even the horse is going to have a crown. Then give the robe and the horse to one of the king's most noble princes. Haman, you're going to go down hard. Have him robe the man whom the king especially wants to honor. Have the prince lead him on horseback through the city square, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man whom the king especially wants to honor. And Haman is drooling. He can see it happening. Go and do it, the king said to Haman. Don't waste another minute. Take the robe and the horse and do what you have proposed to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Don't leave out a single detail of your plan. So Haman took the robe and the horse, and he robed Mordecai and led him throughout the city square, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king especially wants to honor. Haman cannot believe what has happened to him. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman fled to his house, thoroughly mortified, hiding his face. When Haman had finished telling his wife, Zeresh, And all his friends, everything that happened to him, his knowledgeable friends who were there and his wife Zeresh said, if this Mordecai is in fact a Jew, your bad luck has only begun. You don't stand a chance against him. You're as good as ruined. Yes, he is. And we see what happens next. Remember now, God is never mentioned in this book. And we're asking the question, is God going to keep his promise? Is God sovereign? 
Will providence win the day? Will God continue to make a family that's big and use this big family to bless every family on the earth? And remember, the king who's going to be the Messiah comes from the line of David. That is the line of royalty. And the royalty are all in Persia subject to annihilation. And every one of these Jewish people knows this. So here comes Esther chapter 7. Another title for this chapter could be Haman is executed. Are you ready? You want to see him get it? Let's do this. We'll practice. A week ago, we, when we read about Haman, as soon as we said Haman, everybody booed or stomped your feet or both. So going forward, just for this chapter 7, if, if I read the word Haman, you yell boo or stomp your feet or both. You with me? I'll, let's try it right now. Haman. Very well done. Here we go. If you're online, it's okay in your living room, in your kitchen. When I say Haman, boo, slam a coffee cup on the counter and say boo. And, and Here we go. So the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther at this second dinner while they were drinking what? Wine. No kidding. It's 15 times in this book where the king drinks too much wine. The king again asked, Queen Esther, what would you like? Half of my kingdom, he doesn't mean that literally, just ask and it's yours. In other words, queen, anything you want you can have. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and she has, and if it please the king, and it does, give me my life and give my people their lives. There it is. The tension has reached its peak. The people are at risk of annihilation, and the queen dares ask the king not to go through with the edict to annihilate the Jewish people. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, sold to be massacred eliminated. If we had just been sold off into slavery, she says, I wouldn't have even brought it up. Our troubles wouldn't have been worth bothering the king over. She's willing to say, had I only been sold into slavery, we can deal with that. I wouldn't have troubled you with it. It's just a detail. But no, we've been sold to be annihilated. Remember, Haman funded it. Uh, by the, uh, the king Xerxes exploded who, who plans to annihilate you, he's asking. Where is he, this monstrous, an enemy, an adversary, this evil Haman, said Esther. <laughs> Haman <laughs> was terror-stricken, no kidding, before the king and queen. The king, raging, left his wine finally and <laughs> did something good and stomped out into the palace garden. Haman stood there ple very good. I went to <laughs> Haman st stood there pleading with the queen Esther for his life. He could see that the king was finished with him and that he was doomed. As the king came back from the palace garden into the banquet hall, Haman was groveling at the couch on which Esther reclined. The king roared out, will he even molest the queen while I'm just around the corner? When that word left the king's mouth, all the blood drained from Haman's face. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, spoke up, look over there. There's the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai who saved the king's life. It's right next to Haman's house, 75 feet high. And the king said, hang him on it. 
So Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And the king's hot anger cooled. Wow. So here we have a part of the issue settled. But remember, when the king signs an edict and stamps it with his signet ring, it's irrevocable. So Haman, the evil and vile person, is executed. But guess what? The edict is still in effect, and the date has been picked. It's going to be March 7th of next year. That's, and that day, the armies that are going to annihilate the, the Jews are in effect. It's going to happen. And that's the tension we're left with right now. Again, asking, is a hidden God at work? Or are these people going to be annihilated? We don't know that yet. Come back next Sunday <laughs> and find out what happens. We're going to close this thing out. And spoiler alert for us in our country, next Sunday is the beginning of Independence Day. Huh? Can you see what I'm trying to do here? Well, you know that God is not going to go bail on his promises. We know that. There's an empty cross behind me. And we know how the story ends. But they don't. And you have times in your life when you're not sure either. And that's where we are with this story. We're believing that God is sovereign. We're believing that God is providential. And yet there's a lot of stuff in our lives, in our world, in our culture that would suggest God's asleep. God doesn't care. God's not paying attention. Maybe God's senile. That's how it sometimes feels in our lives. But God is at work. And I want you to see that in just the neat little way in the life of Jane Hagen Greaves, our new interim summer student ministry director. Hi, my name is Jane Greaves, and I am the interim student ministry director for the summer. And uh, this part of Esther really speaks to me in this season of my life currently. Uh, for such a time as this, right? So um, I'm taking my summer to help step in with the student ministry. And, uh, you know, when Kathy called me to ask to help with this, I was a little hesitant, I'm not gonna lie. I thought, oh, I'm a teacher. You know, I like to have my summers off, take a break from kids, get to relax a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, I knew that this wasn't my plan, it was God's plan. And for a while now, I have been praying about, you know, I wanna get involved with the church more. I just don't know what that'll look like. Uh, so again, I just prayed about it and thought about it. And um, I'm just so excited to take this next step forward with not only my faith, but to help strengthen these middle schoolers and high schoolers. And, you know, I might have uncertainties, I might have failures, I might have some fear, um, but, you know, it's God's plan, it's in God's hands. Uh, we are so fortunate and lucky and blessed to be doing this um, together this summer, middle schoolers and high schoolers, JT, Dan, the whole First Prez team. I'm just so excited to step in and um, build these relationships with not, not only all these people, but with God um, and to just share the gospel and build strong friendships, relationships and um, I'm just ready to step in and do God's work because that's what we are called to do. She had no idea what was coming, did she? <laughs> but that's really good. So I thought I should say the following kinds of things to you. You're telling us 
that you like what we're doing with this book, Esther. And we did a book, Jonah. And se several of you are saying, we really like the fact that we've focused on a book. And just this morning, someone said, me fits, I'd never heard this story before. And I presume, therefore, never read it. And so what we thought we would do this morning is let me tell you why reading this book has transformed my life. You with me? I mean, here's, here's what we're not going to do. I'm not going to tell you how to read this book. This is a great big honking Bible, isn't it? I don't carry big honking Bibles around, but I thought it would be really helpful for you to see one. A big, huge Bible with lots of notes in it. And here's what you aren't going to hear from me today. You're not going to hear from me today a bunch of go do this kind of thing. You already know that. We are the most resourced Jesus followers in history. You can get anything you want, anywhere you want it, easy. It's right here in your pocket. You don't need any help finding a Bible. You don't need any help finding tools to help you read it, devotional things, etc. McLean mentioned one this morning. I happen to have gone to it myself. You can go to your app store and sign and get U version, and it's a little brown Bible that says Holy Bible on it with a red Bible marker, I mean book place marker on the left-hand side of it. You click on it, bang, up comes this morning Jenny Allen, the founder of If Table, and she tells you about the Galatians 2 passage McLean read. And she does it in person. And then you can punch another button and get three different translations of the same verse. You don't need me to tell you how to do that. Although if you get your phone out right now and download your version, I'll be happy. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. You need to know why this book has transformed me. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself if I could. And this is a... I, I feel a little vulnerable because I'm going to say some things that are kind of personal and things that have been hard in my life, but let me just tell you about this book. We'll start out a little bit on the kind of scholar, scholarly side. You ready? In the English language, we have a word, you, Y-O-U, right? And when you use the word, you use the word, you know whether or not it's singular or plural, but you only know it in context. In Greek which is the lovely language of the universe in which the New Testament was written in Greek, you don't have to guess because the word for you, singular, su, sigma upsilon, is totally different from the word you, plural, humes, upsilon, mem, epsilon, yoda, sigma. You with me? Su, you, singular, humes, you, plural. Let me just lead you to a little secret here. Online, can you see my smiling face? Most of the you pronouns in the New Testament are plural. They're plural. This is a team sport. We are a family. God does not mean for us to do this alone. It's plural on purpose. We're being talked to as a group. Now, that doesn't take away any individual responsibility. Of course it doesn't. But all of, this, all of this languaging in the Bible, it's about plural. And here's why that's so transformative for me. Because I started reading the Bible when I was 18 years old. I made a conscious decision as I was invited to do so, like Tim did, I mentioned earlier. He was an older adult, but I was 18, and I was invited to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm inviting you into my life, and I'm going to follow you. And immediately, I was coached to read the Bible. And I did it individually, or privately, I should say, 
but also with other people. Yahoo. <laughs> you, plural. So what happened to me as an 18-year-old is I started reading the Bible both to learn but also devotionally like to kind of, and I felt connection to God. But here's what's so vital about the plurals is immediately I did it also with a group of knuckleheads. Usually it was a group of guys. It turned out that the group of guys that I started with in this small group, we call them life groups at First Pres. it was a life group. I was 18 and I was with other knuckleheads. We surfed together. We did bad things together. We quit doing the bad things sort of together, but we were a family. And so we read scripture and applied it to our life. We, we read it to figure out how it impacted us and we read it together and it brought me closer to them. They became my brothers, my brothers. And it turns out that my biological brothers were Jesus followers also. And so my brothers and my brothers, we, we, I was roommates with them in college. And so I did my Christian life with my peeps. And it makes all the difference in the world. This is, God didn't make us into being hermits. And so these plurals in the language itself are a way for us to understand that's how we hear God speaking to us. We must do it individually. You must decide to be a follower of Jesus, but you can't and shouldn't and wouldn't do it alone. We do it together and we do it like this, but we do it when we're intentional in other ways, when we're serving on teams, mission teams, or when we're meeting just to talk about life and about have our relationships and how's it going and can you help me with this issue and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm 18 and, and I've been I've never not been you plural since. One brief little spell when we moved across the country to go to seminary, and it took a while for us to find a group. But other than that, I've been in some kind of group my entire life. I'd kill for the group. Meet with the guys on Thursday morning, don't mess with me. Oh, man, it matters. So that's one thing about it. It's, it's plural. It's us. It's a family. It's a tribe. It's like a band. And we do it together. And one of, the, one of the slogans I like to say is, church is a team sport. It's a book, and I'd love for you to read it, but it's a team thing. We're all singing from the same music, so there's harmony. And that, that started with me when I was 18. And this book was the way that we met around the things in it and what it's about. And it's about real relationships. And in real relationships, people's lives transformed. That's how we're saying it today at First Press. Real, authentic relationships results in transformation. And in this group, that's where it takes place. Yes, individually and privately, but not only that, and never only that. So that's one thing about who I am. Plurals. So a second one, maybe a little more vulnerable here, is um, the book is a plumb bob. True North. McLean, I didn't know she was going to say what she said, but when she started worship off, she said, uh, I think you said Instagram wants to tell you who you are. Oh, no. Oh, no. The book tells us who we are. 
It's a plumb bob. So for me, two things that were a part of my adolescence. One of them, it, and they were the things that are part of most of your adolescence. You ready? Intoxication and sexuality. Anybody relate? So here's what the book taught me. And again, doing it with the team, the family, the fellas, and, and girls, young women, but some things you don't talk about like that. But so, so the book taught me that there is something that's true, period. And convenience to me is not the deciding factor about what's true or not. And so what happened to me was coming to terms with intoxication and deciding that intoxication was outside of the guardrails of God's best for me and for you. Just, I'm just telling you about me. Now, I'm not saying which kind of intoxication I might have engaged in, but you'd have to multiple kinds. How's that? <laughs> so, and that's, that's the way it was in my teenage culture. And the other, with, about sexuality, I'll, I'll say it this way. I had to repent of objectifying women. It was hard to do that. So there, there's no reason to go into any details, and I don't have any big story to tell you, but that was very real, intent, uh, objectifying women. So one of the things I quit doing, this was a long time ago, the modern challenge of pornography is totally different. I didn't have to deal with that, but it did have stuff that was printed on paper magazines and I just made a conscious decision as a Jesus follower that that is teaching me something that is a lie plumb bob that this this person is not an object and I got to get that out of my system and I don't know if other men can relate to that but if if you objectify women then you need to spend some time in the book with your people because you, you, if you're telling the truth, if it's authentic, if there's not judgment and condemnation and you can be honest with each other, which is the way it is in our group on Thursday mornings, you want to be in this group. I'm telling you. Because we get to it. We have a blast. We laugh. But we get to it because we're plumb bobbing. But that's a truth that men have to fight. I don't know about women. I don't know if y'all have to worry about objectifying us. I sort of don't think y'all do. <laughs> That man, did that matter to me? And so, as an adult, the plumb bob, as I grew through that, and that, those things never go away, but what, what also began to happen for me was personally was I began to see that my faith and my understanding of God's truth, God's will, those things began to have a dramatic impact on how I thought about myself as a person with a job and how I do my job and how I do my marriage and what I do as a father. And again, it's in conversations with other Jesus followers trying to figure it out. And, but but here is, here's the data. I mean, the, McLean didn't say this fancy terminology. She talked about um, Instagram trying to tell you who you are. Here's the, here's the plague or the malaise of our culture, one of them. Radical, autonomous individualism. How's that for a mouthful? And what that is, is this, it's the way we're wired on the inside. The West is that way. It's been this way. It took us 400 years to get this way. Pardon me for doing the cultural analysis. 
But if we think that my convenience and what I want and how I feel and all that, if that's, if that's going to be the line on by which I make my judgments, then anything's going to go. And this book is about the sovereign God of the universe who's communicated with us. Now, we're going to read it together, and we're not all going to agree. That's okay, but we're doing it together, and we're doing it lovingly, and we're, not, we're doing it with authenticity in our relationships. And, oh, man, nothing, nothing better. Oh, there's just nothing better than having real, authentic friendships where you can talk about stuff that matters, and your life will change. I promise you. <laughs> One last thing I want to mention. This book has helped me to see that it's not about me. I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the reasons that I think it's about me and don't even know I'm doing is this. It happened to me yesterday. I was reading, believe it or not, I was reading about my Florida State University Seminoles. And I was reading an article about our offensive line coach, who's also the offensive coordinator, and recruit, what the recruit said about this man. This, this recruit, a high school senior, said, he doesn't have any children. We're his children. Then the recruit said this, I grew up without a father. And immediately my emotions busted out of me. Because in a sense, I grew up without a father. And so what happens in my life is that I'm getting healed of that. What happens in my life is I have you. And I have friends, and it's real. And men have stepped in and been father figures to me. And my own dad, I, I worked hard to try to make my own dad and the relationship with him as good as it could be, but it just was what it was. He just left. He was gone seven years when I was in elementary school. So I got hurt. And so, it, so it, I, without even knowing it, I think it's about me in the world. I think it's about me in life. And ah, what a relief to realize that it's not about me. It's for me, yes, but it's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. I'm going to pray. Read the book. Gracious God, we thank you that you are sovereign. I can see it in my life. Good night. Jane said something about it in her life. We see it happening to the people of Israel. We know, gracious God, that you're at work even when you appear to be hidden. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're working providentially behind the scenes. Thank you that we also can see you at work, and we know all of this is true because of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, 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 yes. You, you're wondering here, those of you who are already running out the door, we're going to make it easy for you to bring your friends to First Presbyterian Church. First Pres is at the movies beginning July 10th, and we're starting. We're not telling you the movies we're doing over the course of July, except for the first one, Top Gun, not Maverick, the original. We're going to have Top Gun in our theater right here, parts of it on our Sunday morning, July 10th, in order to make sure that it's fun for you to be here. You can come. It's going to be great, and you can invite people because we're about real transformation, and transformation means growth, and we want you to bring your friends in here because you're close to your friends, but you don't think they're close to God. Well, this is going to help them get there a little bit more. First Prez at the movies, Top Gun 1984, whenever it was. How about that? But wait, 
There's more. Reveal Sunday the same day. We're going to show you on Sunday morning, July 10th. We're going to have a 3D video of the new buildings, a fly-through, a fly-around. We're going to have floor plans. We're going to have a budget. We're going to have a timeline. We're showing you all of this on the 10th of July. Bring your friends and come. Are you with me? And now I want you to stand and you're going to sing with them the just last little piece of this first song we did this morning. Yeehaw! Read your Bible. God's love. 